0: This is Miss, September the fifth, two thousand seven. Revelation chapter two. Look, y'all. There's a um, it's a long passage that we have to get through tonight. I only printed the first couple of verses of really all of chapter 2 and 3 that we'll be considering tonight. And I know it's hard to listen to this much, but look, do this for me. Instead of getting bogged down in sort of the details, what I really want you to do tonight as we read through this, I'm going to read all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, I want you to just let this stuff kind of wash over you tonight. Uh, In other words, I wanted to sort of create an impression on you as we start to dive into it. Um, It'll take us a while, but I think you'll find that the collective impression that comes from these letters uh, is pretty powerful, okay? So let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This is God's Word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I are. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. And to the church in Smyrna write, "...the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war, with the word of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will, ri- I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel in the church of Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars... I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Finally, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. There is something that happens to the Pevensey children when they discover that their only help of getting through this ordeal they're facing in Narnia is not going to come from a man. My favorite scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. "'Aslan, a man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.' "'Oh,' said Susan, "'I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe?' "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.' "'That you will, dearie, and no mistake,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, "'they're either braver than most or just plain silly.' "'Then he isn't safe,' said Lucy. "'Safe?' said Mr. Beaver. "'Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? "'Who said anything about safe?' "'Of course he isn't safe, but he's good.' He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Look, y'all, last week we noticed that this Jesus that stands in the center of his people, in the center of his churches, is most decidedly a king. In all the different ways you might describe him, he is a king. And I tried to warn you at the end that being in the spirit, to be in the spirit, will most likely come to you at first, quite honestly, as being a very terrifying thing. But at the same time, it'll also be the most comforting thing you've ever known. And the truth is, Mr. Beaver's words about meeting him are true. It will not be safe, but it'll be good. And Peter suddenly recognizes that at the prospect of being terrified and meeting him, he needs to be terrified. He wants it. He longs for it. And he needs to be helped. And my question I want to lay before you tonight is why? Because I think the answer comes from something very profound about the Christian view of the world. And since you happen to be a part of that world, it's a Christian view of you. You see, the Christianity is taught that there are two parallel truths that define who we are as human beings. On the one hand, we believe that there is in the world an inevitable moral social, psychological, sexual order to the universe. There's a pattern. There is truth out there, a way in which God has established the universe to be. But parallel to that truth is another aspect that goes right along with it, that this world that was created to be good is absolutely tainted and marred by sin. Alienation from the Creator and the sustainer of the moral universe has thrown everything in God's universe out of whack. The world, therefore, is broken. And because it's broken, any aspect of that world, which includes us, is going to suffer under its effects. Now look, there is at the heart of Christianity, however, a huge announcement. And that announcement is, is that Jesus has come. There is a man named Jesus of Nazareth who has come to inaugurate God's plan to set the world to rights. But that plan that He's inaugurated is very much in process. At the end of the book of Revelation, John's going to give us a sense of what we're supposed to look like. But it means that for you and me, we will forever live in between. Does that make sense? We will always live in between. At any given time, there are going to be things inside the heart of a person who knows, God, who knows Christ that can be condemned. Stuff that you can, in which you can legitimately rejoice. Things that you can look around you from the created order that are good for you and enjoyable for us. Beautiful days, great friends, and the blessings of prosperity notwithstanding. But y'all, at the very same time, there will also be things that will accompany those things which need to be avoided, repented of, forgiven, healed, and fought against. And And the same is true of your own soul. You are forever conflicted between those two great things. Now what does that have to do with what we just read? Folks, Jesus comes and appears to the seven churches, which basically means, like I told you last week, that He's giving a message to all of the churches to basically come and give down a royal edict. Jesus the King is coming to deliver something to His people that is going to speak perfectly to where every church is in the world. You see, what we have in these passages were not just meant for the churches of His day, but they were meant for all churches throughout time. They come to us as examples, and we need to hear it with every passing generation. But because we live in a universe that is an act of rebellion against God, but is at the same time something pleasing to Him, there's always going to be something that He can commend in us, things that He can encourage us about but also something He can condemn in us. Things that need to be confronted. Next week I'm going to argue with you that there's things that God comes to exhort in us or to charge us about and also some incentive that He gives us as well. We'll talk about that next week. But do you know what King Jesus is being to us? King Jesus is being a good pastor. He is being for you what you wish your best friends would be to you you, in your best moments. Because he's telling you what you need to hear. It's going to come with some encouragement. It'll come with some rebuke. It'll come with a lot of instruction and some very precious incentives to stick with it. But my simple point I want to suggest you tonight is, isn't that what you want? aren't Aren't your best of friends, the one whom you appreciate the most, are the ones who do all of those things for you? They know how to encourage you. They know how to tell you when you've stepped out of line. They know how to give you wisdom. And they know how to draw things out of you that you wouldn't know were there before. Folks, look. I suggest to you that what Jesus has to say to these churches is what we all want to hear at the base of our heart. Two things I want to run through tonight very quickly and then we'll be done. Things to commend and things to condemn. The thing that we see, first of all, is we see three things that Jesus wants to commend or things that He appreciates about these churches. Number one, He says, is that they fought against error. He likes the fact, when Jesus goes to the church in uh, in Ephesus, He tells them how much He appreciates the fact that during their testing, They tested people to see whether they were true or false. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am pleased when you receive persecution. And the main form of persecution came to people at that time from the old school Judaism. And these people had not given sway to them. They had stood for what was true. And Jesus said, You went out there and you confronted those people on where they were wrong and you held fast to the truth. All right, now look. This goes so against your constitution that I can hardly dramatize it as much as I probably need to. Most Christian people hate, Christian people hate the thought that my profession of Christ, or if I'm actually going to follow Christ or make a decision to follow Christ, that it's actually going to cause me at some time to have to say to someone else that what they believe is out of accord with what the Bible says. Guess that? We don't like that. That's offensive. Who are you to say, you know what the Bible teaches? Hey, we all disagree. We're all just trying to be sincere now, aren't we? But see, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for just the opposite. You fought for truth. Look, is that that an aspect of your time here at college? Are you about the business, if you find yourself to be a religious person, of saying, I really would like to know what the truth is? What does the Bible actually say about this instead of constantly taking someone else's word for it? My friends, when we begin to look and walk around saying, hey, can't we all just get along? We don't want to step on anybody's toes. The Bible is against you. It is part of our hard work to have to sit down at tables over good conversation and say, let's see if we can come to some agreement together. And I know you think that we've done that. We have not. For about the last 200 years of of at least American Christianity, we stopped thinking that the conversation was interesting. And we played the can not we all just get along" game. And what happened to American Christianity is it splintered. And the reason why there are so many denominations represented in this room is because we stopped talking about doctrine. Not because we started. (laughs) Secondly... Not only are they commended for fighting against error, there's this thing called the off button. It's a wonderful little tool. Not only are they fighting against error, but secondly, he commends them for enduring suffering. Enduring suffering. The churches in Sardis and Philadelphia actually don't get anything negative said about them. Isn't that interesting? And the reason why is it because they are suffering. And Jesus looks at them and says, I'm pleased with your suffering. Now bear with me for a second. I realize this is also offensive. But this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. Because the question is not if Christians are going to suffer, it's when. And Jesus says, I'm glad when you take that up. I'm glad when you take that up because it shows the world something about what I'm like. Did you catch that? That's a big one. Jesus says, It's not that I'm some kind of maniacal enjoyment sort of sadist who loves to see my people suffer. It's that when my people suffer with courage, they show the world something about me. And what is that? That I'm the kind of God who suffers. That I'm the one who suffers for my people. Embedded in Jesus' com- commendation for these people's suffering is the idea that He is a suffering God. God. Look, through every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, I would challenge you to see that He's constantly referring to His own suffering. He's constantly referring to what He comes and does for His people. Thirdly and finally, to be commended, He says, I'm glad that you've done good works. (laughs) He comes to the church at Thyatira and says, You did works of love and of faith and of service. And the fact that these people went to all kinds of efforts to preserve their neighborhoods, to preserve their cities, to preserve their families, Jesus looks and says, that pleases me. You know, there's an age-old problem with a lot of Christians who get very uncomfortable talking about good works. Because many people want so badly to protect the idea of grace, a good thing, that they're almost afraid to talk about doing good deeds. That's a bad thing. Look, Jesus is not afraid to look and say, It pleases me when you do what is right. Why are we so afraid to admit that? That God smiles upon the fact that you go like Doug was inviting you tonight, next Wednesday, to visit the cast offs of our society. You do realize that's what our elderly are. Our elderly the ones that we are that we we've found no usefulness for. And so we put them in a little institution so they can die. And when you go to that place and you minister to them simply by spending time with them, Jesus looks and says, I'm pleased with that. I smile at that. Look, y'all, I think there's a beauty here in Jesus' commendation of His people because He's trying to look and say, I'm not just wanting to be the heavy. I want to show you that there are things which please me. I know for many of you, you grew up under a parental system where you never actually heard that your parents were proud of you. I realize that. And for some of you, it has left an ugly scar to not have a father or a mother who looked at you and said, That was great. I am so proud of you. But the great part about all of these commendations that come in the book of Revelation is, is the God who is in heaven is no such Father. He is willing to look at you and say, Well done. Well done. He's got beauty in Him because of that. However, secondly, this good king is an honest king, and he does indeed have things that he has to condemn. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. To be honest with you, the passage that we read is largely negative. And when Jesus addresses these churches, it's not all cotton candy. Now look, and I want to ask you before we even start into some of these things, does this bother you right out of the gate? Does it bother you that Jesus is talking this way? We want a Jesus who is meek and mild and you know marked by kindness, and that's certainly a description of him. But my friends, there's also of a side of it, there's a side of him that you need just as badly that despises anything that would come between you and his relationship. Does that make sense? Jesus will do whatever He can to encourage you, but He will also do whatever He can to warn you strongly about the things that might divide and erode this relationship. And to be quite honestly, the bulk of these letters are spent warning you about this. What does He say? Four things, very briefly. First of all, He says there's a lack of love. He were to be condemned for a lack of love. He goes to the Ephesian church and says, Look, Ephesians, I know you have all the right answers. You're zealous for the truth, but you know what you don't do? You don't ever serve people. You've forgotten those first works, those things you used to do when you were so excited. It's very interesting that the first church, Ephesus, and the last church, Laodicea, are the only churches that are threatened to be destroyed. I will remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, he's saying, you will cease to be a church if you keep on in the way in which you're going for. And do you want to know what both of those churches are condemned for? Heartlessness. Heartlessness. They have a nice outward appearance. They feel fine, but they've stopped serving people. They've lost their love. Now, tragically, most of us think when the Bible says love, we're talking about emotions. Oh, I just don't feel for Jesus the way I used to feel. That's not what He's talking about. He's talking about the the, the love of action, the love of service, the love of commitment. That's what your heart is. Your heart is not only the seat of your emotions, it's the seat of your affections, what you find beautiful, your focus, your direction in life. And Jesus says somewhere along the way you were distracted from that and something else became interesting to you you've lost your first love secondly he says that you've compromised with the world he goes to the church at Pergamum and basically says you know you're dabbling with things that you think will not burn you but they will you've got your big toe in the water of all kinds of things namely some prophetess named Jezebel my suspicion is that that's not her real name Jezebel was not a very happy figure from the Old Testament go back and read some of those stories from Israel's history Jezebel was a, uh, um, was a um, uh, uh, sort of a synonym for all kinds of debauchery. I'm sure there was this teaching that was going through. But somewhere along the way, the church there had got the pergamum, had suddenly thought, had begun to think that doing bad things was not detrimental to them. That sin would not be paid back for. That people would not bear the emotional and psychological scars of walking away from Christianity that they would. This is a huge point. Jesus comes along and says, I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And we already talked about the fact that that's the Word of God. And what He's saying is, is that sin in any of its forms is dangerous for you. Look, I know it's easy to look at Jesus as being the heavy here. But he's assuming that the world has a grain. Do you know what I mean by that? Like a block of wood. He's saying the world has a grain and if you actually go along with that grain, you can experience all the beauties of the wood. But the second that you turn that around and try to reverse the created order that I have established, what happens? You'll splinter your life. You end up destroying yourself. And to be quite honest with you, there's folks all over the place, all over this campus, in this room tonight who have splintered their lives. Seniors bear witness to these freshmen to look and say, there is no dabbling in something without a toll being taken on your own soul. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, okay, what about all that forgiveness stuff? The whole Jesus bit. Where's all that? And the truth is, it's all true. Come back next week, we'll expound on that a whole lot. But look... That doesn't mean that you will not forever bear the scars of the kind of decisions that were made to assume that I can dabble in something, have halfway into it and halfway out scars on your own soul. Compromise with the world. Thirdly, he comes and challenges these people with deadness. Look, we have to take a hard look at the church of Sardis, y'all. They think they're alive, but Jesus says they're actually dead. You think you've got it. it Were it not for a few faithful, you would not even be a church at all, he says. And the source of your deadness, I have not found your works complete. You know what he's saying? He said the church in Sardis is dead because they're full of good intentions. They're full of a lot of things that they always intended to do and just never got to. But truthfully, when they look inside, there was no actual spiritual life. They had good intentions. They regretted things they didn't do. But when they looked inside, there was nothing. And Jesus says, when I come to you, I'm going to come like a thief. What does He mean? He means it's going to surprise you. It'll shock you. You won't see it coming. You want to know why? Because you don't even know that you're dead. Look, y'all. The only call that Jesus can give to these people is to wake up. Wake up. Because He looks and says that there will be those out there One day who will need to wake up and realize where they really are. And it's only by waking up. You're asleep at the wheel, spiritually speaking. And you don't even know what's going on. And to be quite honest with you, you may have found yourself even tonight in front of the freight train of God's Word. That, my friends, is the wake-up call that a lot of us need. Deadness? Who are these people? Fourthly and finally... Jesus challenges these people for their lukewarmness, their lack of love, their compromise with the world, their deadness, and finally their lukewarmness. In Laodicea, Jesus says, there are people there who make me vomit. That's the literal rendering of the word. that make me vomit. There was actually a city to the north of Laodicea that was known for its cool, clear water. And there was a city to its south that was known for its hot medicinal springs. But in the center of that city, in between those two cities, was the city of Laodicea that was known for a nasty, tepid, dirty drinking water so that people oftentimes couldn't sustain themselves there. Now look, I don't want you to take this passage the way in which I took it growing up. Jesus is not saying, listen very carefully, Jesus is not saying that you are lukewarm if you are sinning. That's not what he's saying. I wish you were hot or cold, but instead you're lukewarm. And you're lukewarm because you haven't done enough. That's not what he's saying. The irony is, he's saying you're lukewarm if you think you're not sinning. He's looking and he's basically saying, I'm not going after disobedience. I'm going after self-righteousness. You walk around, you think you're prosperous, you got everything, and you have need of nothing. And if you could just see yourself in a spiritual mirror, you would see that you are poor, miserable, and naked. I counsel you to stop going to other things to buy for. Stop going to all those things. You're looking to a thousand other righteousnesses other than me. You're going to your reputation. You're going to your family name. You're going to your sense of being able to finesse your way through school. And every one of them is a righteousness to you. And you're lukewarm. Not because you're not jumping through enough Jesus hoops, but because you think you got it all together. And the most spiritually well-to-do among us on this campus are in many ways the ones who are the most terrified by this verse. You want to know why? Because they are buying things with stuff they can't purchase. And they're lukewarm because they think that they've got it all together. You alright? Look, there's nothing comfortable about walking through that, y'all. And it's not intended to be. But listen to me. Please, take heart in this. If it's bothering you enough tonight, if talking through those things, you're sitting there tonight thinking to yourself, okay, if I just don't blink or move, he won't know that I think all of that is me. (laughs) Look, y'all, every bit of that is me. I'll be the first to say it. But here's the deal. If it's enough to bother you, it means that the door's not closed. I don't worry about the people who walk out of RUS saying to themselves, uh Got to deal with that. I got to think about that. I need to go talk to somebody about that. I need to pray through this. I don't worry about those people. <laughs> Funny read, though, you're the only people that call me. It's the one who walks out and is like, yeah, good. That was great. Are we done? My friends, that's what we're terrified by. Those are the people for whom we look and, ter- and, and scream, wake up. But here's the deal. I don't think we have a Christian church until we do this. I'll finish with this. This summer I was listening to my little NPR religion podcast. It's what ministers do. Um, And there was a podcast that was an interview with a a, a reporter for the LA Times who basically had been responsible to cover a huge uh, sex offender case from a Roman Catholic priest uh, this summer, or actually all of last year. And he was leaving the faith. He had denied Christianity. He was a Christian before, but after watching what had happened with this man's trial, he was leaving the faith. And the interviewer was very interesting because he really pressed him. They looked and said, do you still have faith? And he said, I don't think I do. I'm probably at the level of being an agnostic at this point. And they looked and they said, well, why? What is it that caused you to lose your faith? And he said something so interesting that I've I've not been able to forget it. He said, to be honest with you, I'm not angry at the priest who did what they did. I'm not offended by what went on in terms of the audacity of what those people did. He said, what I'm upset by is that the church stood by and watched it all happen and didn't do a thing about it. Look, y'all, that absolutely shook me because I recognize that there's probably a lot of skeptics in this room tonight. You're sitting back looking, going, Okay, put the gun down. What in the world are you talking about? Right? Who would ever be so harsh? I'm a visitor, thank you very much. Don't you have anything nice to say? Look, I think you want more than anything else in the world for someone to stand up and say, This is out of bounds. This does not define us. And the truth of the matter is, if the church is ever to be anything, the cleansing has to begin from within. And we have to decide on our own terms if we're going to be who we claim to be. Because if you're a skeptic tonight, I guarantee you one of the things that motivates your skepticism is the fact of all the junk you see coming out of people who claim to be Christians on this campus. I'll bet you $5. You know what? You're exactly right. And I want you to know that Jesus is no such pastor. He's not going to let it just go by. He's standing up and He's saying in no uncertain terms, I will remove your lampstand if I have to. I will come against you and fight with you with the sword of my mouth. I will bring to bear upon your own heads the things that you think you can trample upon. And to be quite honest with you, some of the wreck that we find ourselves in as a church today is due to that very thing that Jesus is coming with strength to His people. Don't you let go of Christianity because of what you see around it. Because Jesus is going to take care of it. That's His promise. But here's my question for you, skeptic. Don't you wish someone would talk to you that way? Don't you wish there was someone who loved you enough to speak with you that forthcomingly? I'll bet you do. Because there's an invitation tonight to have the courage to face somebody like that in this passage. I wonder who would take that challenge. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that You would arrest us where we stand. That You would cause us to take a spiritual sounding. Cause all of those who name the name of Christ to take a spiritual sounding and to see if there is a lack of love in us. To see if there is deadness in us. To see if there is lukewarmness in us. We appreciate Your commendation. But we realize that we need to be terrified. We need to be woken up because we have dabbled with things that we ought not trample upon. And we would come to You tonight as humbly as we can pleading, setting aside all of the righteousness that we've tried to grasp, setting aside all these claims to to have it all together, to be rich and in need of nothing. We pray that You would give us counsel to come and buy from You gold refined in fire. A righteousness that, doesn't, that isn't beholden to our friend's opinion of us. A righteousness that isn't based upon whether or not people like us. but one that's only found in Your Gospel. Would You lead us into that tonight? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.